and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Help us keep this going. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. Today, we're talking about Sister Ignatia Gavin, the angel of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's not always listed among the founders of AA, but her involvement was indispensable to its creation. Truly, without her compassion, her vision, her tireless care for her special cases, and her willingness to bend the rules, Alcoholics Anonymous would not have begun or grown as it did. And she's another little spitfire of a woman who would not let her tiny size and her own frail health get in the way of doing the right thing. Yeah, we've talked about a number of women like her already. St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, Sister Blandina Segale, Mother Mary Bentivoglio, Rose Philippine Duchenne, all women who would not accept no as a final answer, and they were tiny. We've done episodes on all of them, and given the history of the church in this country, there are more to talk about. (laughs) One difference for Sister Ignacia is that she's the only Irish woman in this group. The others are either Italian or French by heritage or birth. Sister Ignacia was born in Ireland. Yes, she was born Bridget Della Mary Gavin, a good Irish name, in January of 1889 in County Mayo, Ireland. I think some of my ancestry comes from County Mayo, which is in the northwest part of the island of Ireland. So maybe we're distantly related. Or maybe not. not. But maybe. Anyhow, when she was seven years old, so about 1896, the family left Mayo for America. They landed initially in Newfoundland, but then made their way through Ellis Island and settled in Cleveland, Ohio. Her father was a laborer. She became a very good pianist, eventually offering private lessons. In her later teens and early 20s, she felt a call to religious life, but her mother prevented her from entering for a long time. Eventually, she, her mother, relented, so Bridget entered the Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine, a woman's religious community founded in Cleveland in 1851. They ran hospitals and orphanages, and she was drawn to their work. She was given the name Sister Ignatia and was sent to teach what she taught before, music lessons. She worked at that for about a decade, but it didn't work out. She was such a perfectionist when it came to music that she couldn't handle her students not caring as much as she did. She suffered a physical and mental breakdown in the late 1920s and was sent to the brand new St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, Ohio to recuperate. At St. Thomas, she was put in charge of admissions, a position she held for many years, and this would prove very important. During this same period, the late 1920s and early 1930s, another important story was developing in Akron, and when the two stories collided, magic. Magic. The second story is about Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith. Dr. Smith was a proctologist in the Akron area. He had a successful practice as a colorectal surgeon and worked with all of the area hospitals. But he also had a significant drinking problem, which dated back to his undergrad days at Dartmouth. His drunkenness nearly prevented him from graduating from med school, but he managed to sober up long enough to pass his exams. He established his practice in Akron, but his drinking was causing problems in his family and 
in his profession. By the 1930s, his practice was suffering. He had lost most of his prestigious clients, and the better hospitals in town had severed their relationship with him. Tiny and fairly new St. Thomas was one of the few that would have him. He finally accepted that he needed help with his drinking problem. In 1933, he attended a lecture by a man named Frank Buckman, the founder of a thing called the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group was a Christian association dedicated to helping Christians live lives of mutual aid through giving everything over to God, living in community, and submitting to mutual accountability. They believed Christians could live truly godly lives. I mean, it's not a bad plan as far as it goes, but without, you know, the sacraments, it's kind of doomed as a Christian project. Mutual accountability is great, but it needs the grace of the sacrament of penance to really have the effect that Christ intended. Right, but those good parts are good, and they would produce much good fruit, especially as they inspired the 12 steps of Alcoholic Anonymous. Certainly. As a mutual aid society, it's good stuff. If it were paired with Catholic sacraments, I imagine it'd be a real powerhouse of grace with many lives changed for the better. In fact, and I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but many fallen away Catholics who went through the Alcoholics Anonymous steps did return to the sacraments and have over the years because they see that connection. Yes, they see that the steps AA puts them through kind of points to the spiritual rigors of Catholic asceticism in the sacrament of penance. Absolutely. And that would be obvious to our main story, Sister Ignatia, whom we'll get back to in a moment. But back to Dr. Bob. Hey, it was your digression. Yes, and it's a good digression, but we don't want this episode to get too long. Right. So let's get on with it. You were saying about Dr. Bob? Yes, Dr. Bob. For two years, he tried to get sober on his own, but he couldn't do it. Enter an intervention of sorts. A man named Bill Wilson was in Akron on business. Wilson himself had suffered with alcoholism, but through medical attention, a mystical experience, and the support of the Oxford Group, he had overcome it. In Akron, his business venture went south, and he was sorely tempted to turn to drink to deal with the disappointment. He knew he needed to talk to another recovering alcoholic to gain the strength to refuse that first drink. Through the grapevine, he was connected with Dr. Bob. Bill Wilson did not take that drink, and in return, Bill Wilson aided Dr. Bob to take his final drink in his entire life on June 10th, 1935. This watershed moment holds a special place in the annals of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is considered the kind of the founding date for AA. AA developed in these years along the same lines as the Oxford Movement, an organization where fellow sufferers aided each other. Personal intervention and mutual accountability were the tools used, but AA focused on those who suffered with alcoholism rather than a complete submission of life like the Oxford Movement. And now we bring these stories together to experience the magic. In the 1930s, Dr. Bob joined the staff of St. Thomas. There, he and Sister Ignatia became friends. Sister Ignatia was already personally interested in aiding those who came to the hospital with alcoholism, but she was still doing it on sort of the down low. Offering aid to drunks was not a straightforward thing in those days. No, alcoholism was not seen as a disease with a physical element. It was regarded solely as a moral failing, as though the only problem was the weakness or wickedness of the person's will. They could stop if they just choose to, you know. Hospitals, which generally were struggling with too few beds, would give drunks a place to sober up and then send them on their merry way again. 
For alcoholics, this was no real help at all. Sister Ignatia had seen enough alcoholics in her day, first in Ireland and then among the Irish immigrants in Cleveland, so though it wasn't quite so easy. She tried to minister to them more than the hospital would technically allow, but she couldn't do much. She and one young intern, Dr. Scuderi, would do things on their own. They ministered to both the body and soul of the alcoholics, but they were hampered by the hospital's rules and the dispositions of her fellow sisters. In one well-told tale, she admitted a man who was deeply drunk, intending to tend to him personally, and then she forgot about him before going off shift and going to bed. So, later that night, as he went through delirium tremens, which is the unpredictable state of disorientation and heightened agitation that can accompany withdrawal from alcohol, the sisters on overnight watch were forced to deal with him. When sister came to morning prayer the next morning, the sister in charge of night watch solemnly intoned to her, the next time you admit someone with DT, you had better stay up all night and run through the corridors after him. Finally, things turned for the better when she and Dr. Bob really started talking in the later 1930s. The two of them began to develop plans. Dr. Bob would do what he could to treat their physical maladies within the hospital rules, and Sister Ignatia would intervene to help them spiritually and emotionally. A breakthrough of sorts came in 1939. Dr. Bob had a man admitted to the hospital. He knew this man was in the grip of alcoholism, but he admitted the man for acute gastritis, which is itself a severe condition. With this patient admitted, more could be done. This time they had a plan for dealing with the DT. And the next morning, Dr. Bob and Sister Ignatia managed to have this patient wheeled from his own room into the flower room, which was the room used only for storing and arranging flowers that had been sent to patients. In that room, two members of the local Alcoholics Anonymous chapter were waiting to meet with the patient. The patient was already open to the intervention, and it worked. Things grew from there. The patient was there for a few days, and when he left, he was a changed man. Not long after this, the hospital leadership, to its credit, recognized the benefit of what was happening. They allowed a two-bed room to be designated for this purpose. This became a four-bed and then a six-bed room, and finally a full eight-bed ward was dedicated for this use. With an eight-bed ward, they were able to set up a designated space within the ward where different aspects of the treatment could happen. An area near the door had comfortable chairs which served as a lounge. This allowed comfortable visits with those who came to aid the patients in time to hear speakers and visit with people. The rear of the room had a lavatory and shower room. New patients were immediately taken back there to be cleaned up. The room had a coffee bar that was always available. Coffee is a very important part of the treatment. The room also had a refrigerator stocked especially with milk and fruit juices, also kept up and also available to patients all the time. Alcoholics often suffer from malnutrition since so much of their intake is alcohol and alcohol interferes with the digestion of healthy foods. And perhaps the best part of the arrangement was the location of the ward within the hospital. The door of this ward was directly across from the door to the choir loft of the hospital chapel. The loft was rarely used for an actual choir since it wasn't a parish church nor the main chapel for the sisters, so the alcoholic ward patients could slip across to attend mass in their hospital gown unnoticed by the regular mass goers. And outside of the mass, they could go into that space whenever they wanted to just spend some quiet time with our Lord again, entirely unnoticed by anyone in the main space of the chapel. The operation of the ward, the way it affected healing, was unique. Doctors would assess and deal with any physical maladies. The sisters would offer opportunities for spiritual counsel and prayer. But the real effectiveness of the ward came from the mutual support of the inmates and the Alcoholics Anonymous game plan. 
When a new patient came in, the patients who had been there for a while would take over, helping them out of their street clothes, helping them to bathe, and then helping them into their hospital gown. Almost like a baptismal ritual. Yes, and again, it really tracks the Catholic approach to conversion and sacraments. The older patients also would be responsible for a bunch of the work of the ward, keeping the coffee going, washing coffee cups, cleaning out ashtrays, and basic cleaning. This gave them all something to do and something to be responsible for. Reminds me of a Montessori classroom. (laughs) (laughs) You have a bunch of AA inmates running around. No, no (laughs) alcoholics in her classroom. I'm just saying the process seems similar. Oh, anyhow, the process of healing in the ward went through a series of days. They could be actual 24-hour periods, but they didn't have to be. The first day is admission. Second day, after the patient has sobered up, is the day to admit the problem. Through conversation with AA members and fellow inmates, the patient must admit his own powerlessness over alcohol and accept that without the aid of a higher power, he will not be able to overcome the addiction. The Our Father becomes a powerful tool in this day, and many patients admitted that this day was the first time they'd really prayed that prayer. The third day is about taking stock of one's overall moral situation and admitting faults. This is where the confessional aspect really comes in. Patients are encouraged to admit all, to say it aloud, and thereby to make a new start possible. The fourth day is about what Catholics call the firm purpose of amendment. This is the day in which the patient resolves to change his ways and to seek help from God and from his fellow AA members, his support network, to avoid the problems going forward. And the fifth day is about going forward to help others and to face the new day with a new start. The patient would be given a copy of The Following of Christ by Thomas Kempis, and they also take with them the serenity prayer, Lord, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the strength to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And something Sister Ignatia started doing early on was giving the patient a token, a sacred heart medal, before they left, exhorting them to keep it on them as a reminder of their pledge to themselves, to her, to the other patients, and especially to God, to avoid drinking. She told them before they took one more drink, they must return that token to her. This token quickly became an integral part of how AA operates. Members get a token on milestones of sobriety, 60 days, 90 days, a year, etc. And these tokens have the AA symbol on one side with the serenity prayer on the other side. The token helps remind them how far they've come and of how many other people are there walking with them. Not many of Sister Ignatia's Sacred Heart medals were ever returned. In fact, she took many calls over the years from former patients who were in danger of relapse and who were calling to tell her they were sending the medal back. She would pray with them, encourage them, and help them find help wherever they were to avoid going back to the bottle. Sister Ignatia kept up this work at St. Thomas through the 1940s and into the 1950s, and interest in the program spread far and wide. Alcoholics Anonymous became a national movement in no time at all. The ward at St. Thomas began drawing patients from across the country. Thousands were helped personally by Sister Ignatia and Dr. Bob Smith. But in 1950, Dr. Bob died. And two years later, Sister Ignacia was transferred. Some say she was transferred because of ongoing tensions between her and the management of the hospital. Though her method was bearing great fruit, old prejudices die hard. Others say she was transferred because some of her fellow sisters were displeased with her growing celebrity. 
Either way, she was transferred to St. Vincent Charity Hospital in Cleveland, the original hospital of the Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine, founded in 1865. When she was transferred, she wasn't sure if she'd be able to pick up her work with alcoholics. She wasn't sure if the order and the new hospital would let her, but she asked. And eventually, permission was granted. But... She wasn't given a nice posh part of the hospital, no. She was given an old and dilapidated wing. The poor condition of the space actually turned into an opportunity. I mean, it's actually a bit metaphorical, right? She was given a neglected and badly deteriorated space and had the challenge of restoring it to be a place of help and healing for those dealing with alcoholism. Kind of exactly what she was doing with the lives and spirits of the alcoholics that she was helping for nearly those 20 years. Exactly. And to carry on the metaphor a step further, the work to rehabilitate the space came largely from members of AA. It's fitting, really, because the 12th step of the AA program is to help others who struggle with what you struggle with. Well, preparing a space where treatment can happen certainly fits that bill. The wing was renovated and named the Rosary Hall Solarium, a significant name for two reasons. One, it opened on the Feast of the Rosary, and two, its initials, RHS, were the same as those of her departed friend and co-founder, Robert Holcomb Smith. Sister Ignatia carried on the work at Rosary Hall Solarium as it had been done at St. Thomas until 1965 when she retired to the Order's mother house. She had helped thousands of alcoholics directly and many thousands more indirectly through the national work of Alcoholics Anonymous. She had been honored by Theta Phi Alpha Sorority, by the College of Steubenville with their Pavarello Medal, and even by a letter of, of commendation from President Kennedy. But she avoided publicity. She didn't let the actress Loretta Young do a TV series based on her life and her amazing work. But after she died on April 1st, 1966, no one could stop people telling her story. Thousands attended her funeral, and there was a ceremonial pouring out of coffee, 6,000 cups in all. Her work continues in the thousands of AA chapters around the world, but also more locally in the places where she worked. Rosary Hall Solarium continues to work with those recovering from substance abuse, and at St. Thomas, the original ward of eight beds has carried on as a 14-bed substance abuse detox and assistance center that bears the name Ignatia Hall. Quite a legacy. In life, many whom she helped considered her a living saint. After her death, one person quipped, If Catholics don't canonize her, Protestants will. Well, there is activity on this front, though no cause is officially opened yet. Though, as we are approaching 60 years since her death, hopefully we'll see it soon. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. If you enjoy American Catholic History, please become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Sister Ignacia, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noel Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. Beatrix Media.